Jerry, all I'm hearing from you is cancel white men. That's all I'm hearing. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to episode 43 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. Welcome to another lockdown. Yay! Lockdown 2.0. How's everyone's... uh, 2.0? 2.0? Is this, isn't this the third 0? lockdown? <laughs> I don't know. Third or fourth? Who knows? It's not even <laughs> a lockdown. Nothing changed. Like, they, they closed services, and that was it, and said you can't have as many people inside. That's what I'm reading. Is, that, is anyone confused by the framework that's in Ontario? Because I do not understand any of the color coding or how <laughs> they make these decisions at all. I can't help you. I know a lot of people are saying that even lockdowns are really, really toothless now because there's no enforcement going on and people are just doing whatever they please anyways. And everybody's just expressing their frustration with being in lockdown, even though it's like the weakest, most diluted version of lockdown that I've seen. It's funny that Ford keeps saying, I'm going to lock you down. I won't hesitate to lock you down. And then, yeah, so he keeps like threatening it and thinking that things are going to change when he is the one empowered to change things. He's the <laughs> one who can give workers paid sick leave so they don't have to go into work when they're not feeling well. Like he and then he blames young people. It just drives me nuts. I'm so frustrated <laughs> by this whole thing because he's like blaming young people and the young people have been the grocery store attendants. And like these are the people who have been working through the whole pandemic. That's why they're getting sick. And now right? they're exposed to a new a new virus that are a new variant of the virus that is uh, affecting a lot more younger people. And so he's like, oh, they're partying and all that. And I think some of them are, to be honest. I think some of yeah, them are partying. I mean, let's not, give, let's not give a pass to the Western students who hosted the yeah. business student party <laughs> and that infected like tons of people. I do believe that some of them are partying, yes. But like also there is a huge population of them that are not partying who are working in the grocery stores or the retail stores and things like that. And they're just being exposed more often and they don't have paid sick leave. And I think there are things that we can do to stop a lot of the spread that aren't about parties. Totally agree, Sherry. I have a, mm-hmm. a nurse friend on my Facebook and she said that like all of her intubated patients who have COVID or essential workers, like none of them are partiers. They're all just people from the essential services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I know there's, I know there's partying, but like, I don't know for him to just go around blaming other people when he's the one in charge who could do stuff to fix it. I don't know. I've never been a fan of Ford though. So here I am <laughs> on my little pedestal. <laughs> he's also the the parent that's threatening some kind of consequence but not following up with the consequence. Right? Yes, no. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah, here we are in lockdown again, and uh, nothing has changed. And we're still all waiting to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. My parents got vaccinated, though, which is good. And my wife got vaccinated. So just me, just me. Mm-hmm. Which uh, Which decade of vaccinations are they up to now? I didn't see the latest number. Uh, 70s? Oh, no, no sorry. 60s, 60s if, uh, yeah, 60s if you go to the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, AstraZeneca 60s. So we're a ways away. Do you think we'll get a summer yeah. this year? Mm, I think so. I'm I'm being optimistic. Okay. I think we'll. Well, I, don't I mean, think we will. when we say get a summer, I mean, maybe we won't be in movie theaters, but things will be 
moving along and just lots of outdoor stuff to do. Like today was a great day to be outdoors. I was thinking more about like festivals and stuff. Like uh, Pride and like, <laughs> yeah, the Rib Fest. Oh, I miss all those things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kills me because um, I've been watching um, some Australian football and everyone is back in the stadium. So mm. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> so frustrating that other countries have everything figured out and we still haven't been able to figure it out. So, but yeah, well, I, I think. If there's anything we should cancel, it's got to be the virus. We need I to guess. cancel this virus. Cancel Number one. coronavirus. Exactly. And that's going to be the topic of today. We're going to be talking about cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So, Sherry, what exactly is cancel culture? So, I want to go through a little bit of history sort of to come to a definition of cancel culture. Because it has evolved over time. Um, and the first references to canceling someone came in a film in 1991 called New Jack City. Um, and Wesley Snipes is in this movie. I've never seen it, but he plays a gangster named Nino Brown. And so there's a scene in this movie where his girlfriend, um, is breaking down, uh, because of all the violence that, that he's partaking in. Um, and so I guess Nino gets maybe frustrated and decides to dump her by saying, cancel that, uh, woman that is an obligatory (laughs) term. Um, I'll buy another one. And so that is the first reference, uh, to canceling somebody. And so then it hasn't really been seen since until we get to 2010, So about uh, 20 years later, Lil Wayne uh, comes in with a song and he references that line of the film uh, in one of his songs called I'm Single. And so uh, he references the film and uh, does a little callback there. And so then we don't see it again for a little while until about 2014 when it resurfaces in a uh, little gem of a reality show called Love and Hip Hop. New York. <laughs> and so in this show, um, one of the guys uh, tells his uh, love interest, uh, whose name is Diamond Strawberry, uh, you're canceled. So he breaks up with her by saying you're canceled. And so that was 2014. And so like this idea has kind of been percolating within popular culture. People have really hung on to this movie, I guess. For some reason, I've never seen it. Uh, yeah, it looks like you too have never seen wow. it either. I, all these pop culture references you just said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I've never I, seen any of it. I did see the the clip, the Wesley Snipes clip, when I was just surfing around videos about this topic. So mm-hmm. I, I know what you're talking about, and I, <laughs> which is why I kind of laughed a little bit when you were navigating the cancel that fine young lady (laughs) (laughs) yes the obligatory term for a woman (laughs) yes um so that 2014 reference though i think is kind of what sparked things um so the love and hip-hop new york reality show uh because black twitter took hold of it at that point um so 
Um, black Twitter is what we call, um, it's, it's Twitter, but, but a lot of, um, black people's voices within Twitter. So, um, it's where a lot of language or slang that we use has sort of come about. And so black Twitter was using it, uh, throughout 2015. Um, and so it was used as sort of a reaction to somebody, um, who was doing something that you didn't like. Um, and so you could use it as a joke saying like you're canceled or you could use it seriously saying, you know, I don't like what you've done. You are canceled. And so even in those early days, it was used in a way to kind of boycott people, uh, professionally. So, so people who maybe were in a profession and you don't like something they've done, then you would boycott them. And so, Oftentimes, and so I read this really great Vox article, and this is kind of where I'm getting all of my information, but um, they talk about it as an extension of call-out culture. And call-out culture, according to Vox, is um, the natural escalation from pointing out a problem to calling for the head of the person who caused it. So the cancel culture is like you're calling for that person's head, whereas call-out culture is is the start of that, saying like, mm. uh, you know, I want to call you out because something you've done is wrong. And then I think when that person doesn't acknowledge that what they've done is wrong, that's when it's escalating to a cancel culture where then you're saying, nope, I want your head now. Uh, that's it. Um, and so... Um, call-out culture, uh, according to Vox, predates cancel culture as a concept. Um, and it comes from early 2010s uh, Tumblr fandom, which is Tumblr is like these blogs. I never got into Tumblr. I don't know too much about it. But um, it sort of arised as um, there was a lot of opposition to um, Gamergate, I don't know if either mm. of you know. I know Rory would probably know Gamergate. Oh, and Kenny, you know it as well. Where a lot of women were calling out the toxic masculinity within the gaming uh, industry. Anyway, um, but Vox also says that this sort of culture comes from um, Black culture uh, and, and, and empowers, you know, Black uh movements. So, you know, Black Lives Matter and things like that, and uh, civil rights boycotts and things like that. So, so it comes from, you know, a very um, human rights base. Yeah, but this concept isn't very, uh, I, I mean, the concept of kind of leveraging kind of social media to do this, especially in the context of social justice is relatively new. But I mean, over human lifetimes and human history um kind of ostracizing people uh and excluding people from social and professional groups because of yeah whatever for whatever reasons is has always existed uh but i think that kind of this modern uh concept of cancel culture or call it culture is kind of rooted in uh, around kind of so recently at least social justice and um, and leveraging social media platforms to actually get the word out. Uh, you know, in, in the past, someone might use uh, this uh, ostracizing concept, maybe not for good reasons, like maybe, you know, in the past, if you were gay, 
you maybe ostracize and mm-hmm. remove from a pro- professional environment um, because of uh, obviously discrimination, different uh, opinions, and this. I think this is a kind of this new inter uh, new use of kind of ostracizing uh, someone uh, to actually in, in at least people's minds kind of do good through ostracizing. Mm-hmm. And I would like to, I guess, read one quote um, before we maybe talk about the more modern sort of cancel culture that you're referencing. Um, And it comes from a woman named Anne Charity Hudley, and she is the chair of linguistics of of Africa America for the University of California, Santa Barbara. Okay, so um, she said, canceling is a way to acknowledge that you don't have the power to change structural, structural inequality. You don't even have the power to change all of public sentiment. But as an individual, you can still have power beyond measure. When you see people canceling Kanye, canceling other people, it's a collective way of saying we elevated your status, your economic prowess, and we're not going to pay attention to you in the way that we once did. I may have no power, but the power I have is to ignore you. Um, And so then... The article goes on to say that cancel cancel culture serves as a pop culture corrective for the sense of powerlessness that many people feel, but as it's gained mainstream attention, cancel culture has also seemed to gain a more material power, at least in the eyes of many people who'd like to cancel it. Um, so it's gained a lot of more power that is based in economics as well. Um, and I don't know about you folks, but I remember hearing uh, the first time I heard about cancel culture was within the Me Too movement. And so that's when I remember, you know, women standing up and saying, um, this is not okay with the men in Hollywood and what they're doing. And I think that they should not um, have their positions in in their profession uh, and the influence that they do have um so that's when i first heard about it did you did you folks hear about it like earlier than that no i think actually around the same time the the harvey weinstein scandal and uh people coming out and saying someone like that should not occupy the position of power that he has and, you know, really tearing him down with a social media movement, Me Too. I think that probably was my my first introduction to cancel culture as well. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember when I first heard about it. Um, I suspect it might be something uh, associated with, like, Kevin Spacey, just because that's the first thing that pops into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, some. it wasn't, like, years ago. It's to me, relatively recently that I first heard the word cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And and coincidentally, Me Too was also a movement that was started on Black Twitter. Um, so I think that we have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, people of color, Black people, Indigenous people, things like that, um, to thank for these movements that have, have come out. And with the Me Too movement coming along with this cancel culture, 
Um, I think that's where we see this modernization of people really ganging up together uh, and forming groups to say, this is not okay. We demand change. Um, We demand sponsors to pull their sponsorships. We demand people to be fired. Um, All these types of, of different things to happen to them. And that is kind of the history of cancel culture and and where it's brought us today it's it really is kind of the democratization of decision making and power i mean the uh in the past uh, as i think you mentioned already you know people p- felt powerless and just the fact that you can leverage social media uh especially on mass to actually um do something uh about a situation that you didn't like uh you can actually create consequences for people in power just by leveraging uh, social media. So maybe another, I mean, some people frame cancel culture as really consequence culture, meaning if you Mm. do action A, uh, you get the consequence B as a result of it. Mm -hmm. But like all things, sometimes... um, you can always find examples of where things kind of go maybe not quite as people would have liked uh, when it comes to um, canceling someone. Uh, you know, as I'm kind of looking through um, kind of past stories about cancel culture, clearly there are examples of events or actions of individuals that seem rightly to be like some kind of uh, consequence should be enacted on that person. So uh, I think you mentioned Harvey Weinstein to me, I'm all for canceling Harvey and, <laughs> you know, and, and it, there are certain um, actions that people take that clearly are despicable, disgusting. And, you know, I, I have no, no sympathy for those people. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you run into examples where the areas are a little gray, and I'm not sure how I feel about um, canceling someone because of uh, either a, an action or past actions. I think that, that to mm. me, is a very interesting topic. Um, so one, one example uh, that was reported on NPR was around uh, this professor who was teaching uh, a communications course. And he was uh, teaching this class on kind of uh, different words that are used in different cultures that fill in the silence. So I think in English, we often say, um. Yeah. Uh, that That's kind of a, a common word. Um, but it just so happened, you know, he has lived in China for 20 years. And he obviously... Uh, understands a bit of Mandarin and the Mandarin word equivalent of um uh, happens to sound very much like the n-word and so and which is true I mean in China when uh, I'm you know uh, hearing kind of people uh, communicate with each each other every time they say the word um uh, the equivalent also the word that so you know that cat or that uh, ball, the word that is also very equivalent to the N-word. So um, the professor is kind of explaining how 
uh, the this N word uh, is utilized in Mandarin as uh, this connective word, and also obviously means that. Um, and people were not happy about it. People wanted to uh, cancel him or uh, have him face consequences for uh, mentioning that word uh, because uh, the criticism was, you know, uh, he is a professor in the U.S. He should understand the context of uh, the history in the U.S. and the history behind the N-word, and uh, he really shouldn't be um, saying it in, in the class. So, um, I don't know. That, that this, this, to me, is a very tricky situation because uh, uh, and, uh, Trevor Noah, uh, the comedian, kind of joked about it and basically you know, said, well, you know, Chinese people should just find another word. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, obviously joking about uh, that fact. But um, so it, it's, it's tricky because it's one of those, well, now we're kind of crossing. It, it, to me, one of the key things is around intent. And intent is so important when it comes to the context. Um, and I think often when uh, in social media, uh, one of the main problems is you can't quite fit a lot of context in 140 characters. And when uh, 140 characters kind of go out into the interwebs, um, people may read that and maybe don't understand the full context of why someone was um, using the a word that sounds very similar to the N-word and uh, potentially kind of uh, misunderstand the, the whole context of the situation. Mm-hmm. I think the advent of social media has really put a lot of people under a microscope. Um, and we are very closely examining people and the things that they say. Uh, and even even goes to the things that they like if you like a photo of um for instance if you like a photo of somebody standing by the confederate flag then that says something about you as a person even if you didn't realize the confederate flag was there not that i'm making any excuses cuz i am pulling this from an example that i know of in my head um but like everything becomes this microscope of we are just analyzing everything about people. We have internet sleuths who are pulling up all this information um, without real context around it. And so that I think is the danger of social media sometimes is there is no context often. Um, and, And maybe people kind of jump to those conclusions before they even get the context behind it. So uh, social media can be pretty, pretty dangerous. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts of, um, um, for example, past tweets that someone might have, uh, tweeted if, if someone had tweeted, uh, something that is questionable today, uh, but they tweeted it 10 years ago when they were teenagers, um, are they liable to be canceled at that point? I think this was a very uh, recent situation where uh, uh, Alexi McCammon, uh, she was going to be a uh, an editor with Teen Vogue, uh, kind of the chief editor. She was previously a political reporter for Axios. 
Um, she's 27 years old today, but she was named, you know, uh, the top emerging journalist uh, by the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, she was going to be the third black woman to ever serve as Teen Vogue's uh, editor in chief. However, um, she was she had agreed to resign before even starting because uh, people found old tweets from her when she was a teenager uh, that was racially insensitive uh, to Asian people, especially in the context of today because of all the violence against Asian people uh, and slurs against gay people. Um, so it's interesting because I actually then kind of looked at uh, recent videos and interviews of her uh, talking about uh, racism and uh, how it impacts America. Um, and it seems kind of uh, just almost like two versions of her where there's her today as the professional, you know, doing reporting. And there's her as a teenager with mm-hmm. these very immature tweets. So um, I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? Like, should we hold people accountable uh, for tweets when they were a teenager? I don't think so, especially if they have shown personal growth, like the example you were just describing. I'm sure that there's pretty well no one who hasn't said something foolish or insensitive during their teenage years that if, you know, captured in print, which it is nowadays with the internet and retrievable, could be brought to light against you. And, you know, people grow and people change and you're not the same person that you were when you were a teenager. You've had many learning experiences, many teachable moments since then. If you haven't grown at all and, you know, somebody dredges up your your skeletons in the closet and they, they lay them out in front of you and you say, yep, that's still how I feel today, then, oh, by all means, cancel that person. But uh, I don't think that people's career aspirations and their entire future should be determined by the mistakes they made when they were teenagers. It's interesting that you brought up this example because I have like an almost exact same example, but less highbrow, less, uh, less important person, shall we say, because uh, <laughs> the the Bachelor franchise has been embroiled in controversy, oh, no. much, much controversy lately. <laughs> oh, we, we have to talk about The Bachelor. Let's get into it's it. Like the no, most important topic. A whole bunch of examples within The Bachelor. Listen, I watch The Bachelor. I love it. It is trashy and it is beautiful. <laughs> okay, tell, tell, tell us about this example. Okay. So there's a woman within the franchise, and I, I'm so sorry I forget her name, um, but uh, she had some tweets from when she was younger um, that were sort of defamatory towards um, um, homosexual people, towards Jewish people, uh, towards and towards people with uh, mental health issues. And these were tweets that she made when she was younger, uh, but also tweets that she made, I think, either before she went into psychology or as she was studying psychology to become a psychologist. Since then, she has... So she went through The Bachelor. Uh, she is a psychologist. She went through The Bachelor and um, and has, since The Bachelor, been really outspoken within that community 
about the racism, um, the sexism, the homophobia, all of that stuff that that kind of embroils within uh, the Bachelor franchise. Uh, so she's been very outspoken, very um, on board with change and things like that. And what she said was she knew these tweets existed and that they would come to surface at some point, um, but that she didn't want to delete them, which like a dirty delete, which is when you delete something that you say that is wrong and you delete it because you're called out about it. Um, so she didn't want to dirty delete it um, and would address them when they came up. But then people in the Bachelor franchise were saying it doesn't negate all the harm you have now again done to the community. Um, so instead of deleting it and getting rid of this harm and maybe acknowledging it, uh, she has now re-harmed the communities that she is trying to um, raise up through her work, her current work. Uh, so there was a lot of controversy around that and a controversy about her position because she's creating her her career around uh, all this humanitarian work. So you know, it's it's a tough situation because you want to hold these people accountable for things that they say, but also our actions speak often louder than words and we need to take those actions into account as well. And so if the person sort of acknowledged those, I'm not sure if your um, journalist acknowledged those tweets that they had done in their past and said that they were wrong or anything like that, um, but I think acknowledgement is the first step and then actions definitely speak louder than words as, as you move forward, being able to make sort of reparations in a way, uh, towards the communities that you have harmed. But it feels like, I mean, even with acknowledgement, I mean, there's still going to be the Twitter mob that's going to ask for, ask for their heads, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless yeah. of how, how often you grovel on your feet, mm-hmm. um, and I think um, Sarah Silverman, the comedian, kind of uh, did an interview kind of talking about cancel culture. And you know, her, her perspective was there, there needs to be a path for redemption. Like you have to lay a path for redemption because if you don't, people are just going to find somewhere else where they will be accepted. And where they're going to be accepted is not where you want them to be. And um and uh, I mean, that that's kind of where she's kind of focused on in terms of, I mean, if people are willing to apologize um, and obviously uh, in this case, you know, maybe delete the, the offending tweets and um, continue to kind of uh, make reparations by doing good moving forward, um, and laying out a path for redemption is kind of critical to keeping uh, people who are willing to be your ally to keep them as your ally and mm-hmm. kind of keep them uh, within the the right side of history instead of pushing <laughs> them into um, into a, a worst case fringe group, right? That uh, may not um, be very accepting of uh, you know other people and uh, maybe more conspiratorial right-wing <laughs> perhaps would be the, the worst case. It's interesting you bring up uh, Sarah Silverman because it reminds me of a question I was pondering about, do you think there's any groups that maybe deserve or need a little extra leeway when it comes to 
the things that they say. And the reason Sarah Silverman made me think of it is I've heard it said that comedians need a little extra space because they're they're the people who are testing, you know, what's funny and what's not, what's inappropriate and what's not. And as they're, you know, searching out those boundaries and pushing against them, they can say some offensive things. And sometimes the offensive things will draw laughter. Sometimes the offensive things will draw scorn. But how vigorously should they be pursued for saying these bad things? I think where I struggle um, right now as well with um, kind of the consequence of uh, canceling someone, often uh, the, the majority of people that are being canceled tend to be people in power. Uh, there are some definitely some examples of people that are like everyday people that may have you know lost their jobs, etc. But the bulk of the canceled culture examples that you probably can find online tend to be people of power. Uh, they are probably very self-sustaining, even being after being canceled, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, they have enough savings, they have enough uh, connections and relationships to uh, find other work that maybe isn't really front facing in the public. Um, and when you kind of look at all the various people that have been canceled, especially, uh, you know, these people with power, the interesting thing is people aren't suffering like significantly like yeah they get maybe get removed from a tv show but they aren't you know homeless mm-hmm. they manage to kind of move on to other things and continue to be uh successful in their own way so uh, the one thing that i'm struggling in my mind is what it really is the point of cancel culture because you've essentially maybe removed them from a, a public facing uh, job, but they don't really face significant consequences. Like people are still doing well. And I'll give an example where um, there's a journalist, uh, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, he worked at who worked for New York uh, Magazine. Um, he 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 was pretty famous in terms of you know he's built his career on uh, um, pushing the boundaries. Sometimes he was probably one of the prominent. Uh, reporters that were writing about uh, LGBT rights uh, back when it, you know, it wasn't very fashionable at that time. The only problem was back when he was 20 years old. So right now he's uh, 57. But back when he was in his 20s, he wrote a article with excerpts from from this publication called The Bell Curve, which kind of uh, correlated uh, race with IQ and how uh, it claimed that genetically, you know, certain races had higher IQs than others. So he he wrote this um, uh, article that, a uh, prominent article that had these excerpts. Uh, so obviously, uh, when people found out, uh, he, he was canceled. He, he moved on. He, so he was no longer working for New York Magazine. So the interesting thing is, this was a huge blessing for him because he literally went from making $200,000 a year working for this New York uh, magazine where obviously, you know, his articles, he gets paid a salary. uh, The profit that comes in gets disseminated to uh, uh, the company and uh, obviously other reporters, uh, etc. But he actually went off on his own. uh, And because of his 
um, popularity. He, I mean, he's literally just an independent writer now. He is now making over half a million dollars a year. So he, it was even though he was canceled, he significantly benefited from being canceled. Uh, <laughs> he's gained, you know, uh, notoriety and gained a significant following. Um, and now he gets di- literally direct payments from people versus going through uh, the New York magazine. So there's no cost sharing or anything like that. So it's a question in my mind in terms of what is the outcome we want from a cancel culture? Uh, yes, um, maybe it's no longer in, in the Twitter ecosystem, but people that do questionable things don't really seem to be punished mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Like I, I don't, at least I haven't maybe seen significant examples, unless it was like some kind of criminal activity where yeah. the justice kind of obviously steps in. But if it's not a criminal activity, I, I don't know if people are actually facing any consequences. I think actually people are okay, <laughs> which to me is like, I don't know if cancel culture is actually that effective, if that's actually the case. Well, maybe it's, um, you know, if, if all this is true and, you know, people do, you know, tuck their heads down, then pop back up before too long. Maybe the benefit isn't, you know, retribution against the individual. Maybe it's a benefit for society to reassert these values on that same, you know, very public platform using this, this person's fame and notoriety to say, look what they did, this is wrong, and now everybody knows it's wrong, and everybody should be mindful of that in the future. So it's kind of a, a value reassessment more than actually bringing justice to, to the perpetrators. Maybe it's just a warning for the next person yeah. that <laughs> might want to Could be. do something similar. I don't I don't know that they these people have suffered no consequences from their actions. Obviously, like in the long run, it looks like they didn't suffer consequences. Um most of them particularly. Like I I think about examples like Louis CK, a uh, comedian who um who got really criticized during the Me Too movement when women came out against him saying that uh, he sexually harassed or assaulted them. Um, And then he didn't have any tour dates for about six months. And then he came back and started touring again and nobody really made a fuss about it. So I think about all those people who, yes, they're still doing fine, and they have been called out through cancel culture. However, at the time, they did have to make some sacrifices. They got a lot of negative attention. Obviously, that negative attention, we don't know if it's enough. But it is some kind of consequences. And it's like, if we don't call out these people, then what? What is the mm-hmm. other consequence that they're going to get there is not like otherwise they get there's nothing that happens right so i don't know you kind of have to weigh it and say what is the best way to go about this i did read um a really beautiful opinion piece by loretta ross in the new york times and she talked about instead of calling out we want to call in um and so invite these people into some sort of discourse um using debates and using our words uh, for some sort of healing and restoration, 
um, without this. It probably has to be in good faith. Yeah. Only because I think there, I can think of, I mean, there's probably certain individuals that mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not, they're not going to have a, make a good faith uh, attempt at uh, reconciling maybe what they did or what they said. Totally. They said. Totally. And that's where the flaw in that comes in as well. So like even, even that isn't really the answer for us to just call in people. It may be the answer for somebody, you know, personally. Uh, but if this is a famous person and you're trying to engage them in discourse and they have no idea who you are, you know, that's probably not going to go over so well. And that's where cancel culture helps us to be able to draw attention to the things that people are doing that are detrimental to other humans or um, to our society and um, to really point them out and say, we should not be doing this as human beings. And maybe that person doesn't necessarily suffer a lot of consequences, but maybe society has learned something about, about that thing that they went through. I don't know. It's so tough because there really are no real tangible consequences for these people. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's okay. Like maybe that's why cancel culture is okay because ultimately um, society kind of moves, takes a step forward, but ultimately the person doesn't face long-term consequences. You're kind of moving the needle without, uh, I don't know, causing someone to become homeless mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're causing a little bit of stress so maybe they lose sponsorship stress, yeah. or something like that but yeah long but in the term, long run they're, they're okay they're okay right mm-hmm. yeah i personally wanted to uh touch on an example that i thought was a good one to to dig into because it is so nuanced and not cut and dry what the right response should actually be and i thought it illustrated a place where cancel culture was bringing a hammer where another tool might have been more appropriate. So I wanted to talk about uh, Brett Weinstein, not to be confused with Harvey Weinstein, who belongs in prison for sure. Uh, Brett Weinstein is a politically progressive left libertarian college professor. He studies evolutionary biology. So his crime in the eyes of cancel culture was that he exposed or he opposed the change to the day of absence tradition. So what the day of absence tradition is, is it's a day where ethnic minority students and faculty at the college university would voluntarily stay away from campus to highlight their contributions there. We're not here. Look at the big hole that has been left. The change that was proposed was to ask white persons to stay off campus and to attend a program on race issues instead. And Weinstein found himself on the wrong side of cancel culture because he said the first is a forceful call to consciousness, which is, of course, crippling to the logic of oppression. The second is a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. So banning someone from going to school on the basis of their skin color is very different from deciding not to attend school on the basis of your skin color to draw attention to really the same issue. So I went back and forth in this and thinking, first off, that I was in no way qualified to determine what the appropriate show of force was, whether method A was enough or whether method B was warranted. But I do know that the response from cancel culture and the student body to 
invade Brett Weinstein's classroom and call him a racist and shout over him as he tried to explain his position to them really did leave an off-putting taste in my mouth that this isn't a forum for dialogue. This is a mob mentality. You're, you've gathered a critical mass of people and you're raining force down on this person who you perceive has wronged you and you're not willing to hear them out and you're very much intent on driving them out. So, I don't know. Does his, his opposition to this change to the day of absence warrant being cancelled? I think it warrants debate. Um, uh, I mean, so speaking as a non-white person, mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I just, I don't understand the mechanics of how do you figure out whether someone who is white enough to not be on campus, like it's, uh, mm. I think there's the, the, the act of not removing yourself uh, from campus. Uh, that is, you are able to at least self-identify uh, that you are a, at least you self-identifies non-white uh, and you are demonstrating um, your power by not uh, being there. Uh, that, that at least was the first thought in my head in terms of if you're banning someone from being on campus, uh, what, how, how do you define the criteria? Uh, because if you use the criteria of self-identification, you know, uh, we all have different ways of self-identifying and maybe it's not fully visible. I uh, can, you know, if we, you apply it to uh, race, I mean, there's a kind of a gradation of, uh, you know, what it, how, whether you self-identify as 100% white, somewhere in between. I know that that's probably a rare case <laughs> because you, maybe there's, uh, but that that's just the first thought that popped in my head in terms of it would be tricky if you self-identified as non-white but you look white that's a tricky spot and i think you know some people have in, in the past have definitely understood that uh, for example in brazil where uh, you have people of kind of various shades of colors where some people are more European and white identifying. I mean, they tend to have a little more of the power and, you know, but, um, it, but it's such a gradation that um, it gets tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, tricky is the word that kept popping into my mind too. As I read this, I saw it as something really nuanced and difficult to, you know, just bring a simple hashtag to and say, this is the right answer. What do you think, Sherry? No, I I definitely agree with you, especially, Kenny, when you make the point about, you know, self-identification and race and things like that. The It's a bad example, but the example that comes to mind is, uh, I can't even remember her name and I don't think I want to, but the woman who self-identifies as Black, even though she is Caucasian. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> And, you know, then you get people who have this um, misconception about the type of race that they are when because they identify with the culture of that race. And and then you get into this really tricky situation of, you know, yeah, a lot of vitriol that can come from that. So, yeah. And and maybe a Canadian 
in the Canadian context. I mean, there are maybe more white presenting people in Canada that uh, can identify as native uh, mm-hmm. because of, uh, and uh, because obviously <laughs> uh, historical reasons. Uh, but you you can't tell right sometimes just by looking at someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Overall, I'm I'm not sure how the school actually handled this whole incident. I know the way I would handle it is it's basically a de facto day off for everyone anyways, because you can't conduct classes when you're missing either racial group, wherever you want to draw that categorical distinction from campus, you know, a significant portion of the student and faculty body is gone. So why would you even try to, you know, do any kind of learning objectives that day? That was another thought that came to my mind as well. Like if half of my class was gone because they were you know, the BIPOC community or, you know, identified with some some race and, and left the the community to show what kind of an impact that made. What am I going to be teaching to these Caucasian people of privilege when they're gone? What is the incentive for them to even come to class? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, that just kind of leaves a little bit of, I don't know, a hesitation there. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't have the answer for how the campus handled it. I just know that the story was all about, you know, Brett Weinstein and the consequences he faced for stating his opposition to forcing a portion of the student body to do something as opposed to allowing people to opt into doing something. And maybe sometimes we just have to be honest that when we sometimes come up with bad ideas, they're just bad ideas. (laughs) And maybe this, maybe there should be a different way of... (laughs) addressing this maybe people are too focused on this particular day and what they're trying to accomplish <laughs> i have another uh, problematic uh, example that i want to play with with you too and it's the one about uh, john cleese from, you know monty python fame and he also ran up against uh, cancel culture for a skit on his show faulty towers that used a racial slur and people demanded that the episode be canceled and that the bbc network ultimately complied with that. So I tracked down the episode and watched it for myself, and I found it to be very clearly satire, that the character using the slur is not the one you're supposed to empathize with or cheer for in any way. You know, he's he's the buffoon who's so out of touch that we laugh at for being the ridiculous racist. Should that be cancelled? Is, is satire something that we have to cancel? Is it, you know, enough that you even say the word must be struck down or can we say the word in the context of satire to denounce a behavior are we restricting ourselves with cancel culture i can think of like an example of that that i i don't think has been brought to light at all but i cringed at when i saw so um dr horrible sing-along blog is is a I don't know what you would call it, a series or whatever that I Wonderful. absolutely adore. Neil Patrick it's a, Harris. It's a, it's a web series. <laughs> a web, yeah, web series, I guess, that is absolutely genius. But one of the characters uses um, the R word in terms of ableist language. Um, I don't really want to repeat it if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but using that sort of ableist language identifies him because he is the buffoon. He It kind of solidifies this is his character. This is the language that he's using. And mm-hmm. then similar language is used later on in uh, or 
previously, I can't remember, by the opposing character, but it's used uh, in a very uh, sort of intellectual way. So the, the R word is not used, but it's used in a more kind manner to talk about ableism. And so it shows the the juxtaposition between the characters. And, and so that R word, I think, is used to show that juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. And so this series that I absolutely love and think is brilliant, um, I kind of have this cringy moment when I hear the R word because it is such a, you know, it's it's such an antagonistic word and it really has such a history behind it. And, uh, you know, I have that conflict within myself of, yes, this is art um, and it is showing me something through this use of language however it just it just sometimes doesn't sit very well with me but maybe that's okay i mean Mm -hmm. i think that it was supposed to make you or it should make you feel uncomfortable right Mm -hmm. um but that's why i feel like it's it's all about context at the end of the day because how you use these words um and as you're meant talking about this, uh, the first example in my head was uh, Arrested Development, like Lucille Bluth, the the mother figure, who is clearly a racist, mm-hmm. and like every time, <laughs> every time she speaks, uh, it, it, it's clear that she's the <laughs> she's the racist, you know, older mom. Um, but it's uh, but that's that's the whole point. Like uh, that's that's why uh, uh, they crafted uh, certain characters to be obviously like really poor human beings to contrast them to the better human beings. Yeah. I think you make a good point there about how art, if it's done in this obvious way of like, Hey, uh, these characters are using different languages for a reason, or Hey, this character is uh, clearly this stereotype of a character of an old racist lady. Like those are choices that are made versus like somebody who is just, you know, really ignorant of the issues around it. And I think that ignorance really shows through the art and, and kind of juxtaposes with that art of saying like, oh, this isn't, this actually isn't right. And maybe that's what people picked up on, but maybe they just missed the point of the art. I don't know. But it's one of those, like, I mean, how do you, in art and movies and films, how do you move the plot forward to kind of show, uh, um, show something's wrong like you have to kind of do that contrast right and mm-hmm. um I, I think at least um our media sh- should kind of do this contrasting so that uh um you know back in uh the 50s when people may have done uh some more racist you know uh things like blackface and things like that they never put it into into a contrast right they just literally like laid it out there i'm being racist (laughs) and this is the way it is Mm -hmm. versus today uh there would be this contrast where uh when you show uh racism you clearly contrast it uh to uh why racism is bad yeah i agree with that Uh, i i was going to ask a question about um why why is the right so obsessed with cancel culture? Ooh, good question. <laughs> um, and and this is the only the little small amount of information that I found, but um, I did find an article uh, that talked a little bit about 
how young Republicans are embracing this issue of cancel culture. And so in this article, which we will link in the podcast notes, um, it talked about, uh, it gave us a few statistics. So, and it is an American one, so keep this in mind, but there was a YouGov blue poll that went out and found that one in four Republicans between the ages of 18 and 44 listed cancel culture as their top concern compared to just 1% of Democrats in this same age group, which I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, and you know what, you could see it so much. Like if you even tune in for a second to Fox News, um, they really grab on with their teeth to this idea of cancel culture. And they distort a lot of media to make it seem like cancel culture, especially this example of, remember Dr. Seuss and how Dr. Seuss, the publishing company, decided they were not going to continue to print about six of their books because of racist depictions. That was a that was a company decision. And yet Fox News came out and said, this is the Democrats, this is the liberals, they're using cancel culture to cancel Dr. Seuss. And then they went on and on and on about that, right? And so they're really... And the company's like, but, but <laughs> we made the decision. <laughs> yeah. So well, like they're, they're really digging their teeth into this issue. Channeling my my inner conservative and uh, using the words that I know that they would throw around. Was there really no pressure for political correctness that, uh, you know, bumped up against their freedom of rights speech? Was there not a vocal group of leftists who were driving the company who makes Dr. Seuss to make this call? I don't think any uh, activists were demanding that Dr. Seuss (laughs) be canceled or, um, yeah, I, 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 at least I did not hear of any uh, movement or action against Dr. Seuss. So the action either. preceded the outrage is what you're saying. Yes. They did this and then <laughs> then it blew up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because nobody was talking about Dr. Seuss. And then, you know, I think it's okay for a company to have this internal debate and, and sort of discuss, is it okay you know, we have these books. Somebody maybe brought up a concern. Hey, we have these books that have these racist depictions. Um, should we really be printing them? And then they had that internal debate and decided, no, we shouldn't be printing them anymore. Let's not print them. It's not like they're they're scratching them away from libraries or whatever, but they're just not printing them. Burning books. Do yeah. You, do you know what that's called? Do you, that's called capitalism (laughs) i I don't think i don't think the conservatives understand that when a company makes a decision due to uh motivations based on profit it's called capitalism (laughs) and i don't know why they as i mean most conservatives should be pro-capitalism and somehow suddenly they're not yeah. It pushes the nostalgia buttons. It's Dr. Seuss. Don't touch my Dr. <laughs> Seuss, they'll say. <laughs> that is what they said. But I, I think but I think you do. There make are it what, a- still a hundred there's still like a hundred other books that <laughs> are still being published by yeah. Dr. Seuss. I think you make an interesting point of Maybe they're saying like, oh, this company felt this external pressure to make these changes because this is the way the culture is going and they didn't want to be canceled, et cetera. But I think 
that really uh, takes away from the fact that this company had that internal discussion and and wanted to make a change for the good. Like it really detracts from from the good that they they decided to to partake in. I mean, all companies really have had to face a reckoning within the last year and a half because of Black Lives Matter movements, because of Me Too movements, all those social movements, the social pressure that people who have been using cancel culture have put on these companies to say, hey, you need to change or we're not going to buy your products. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where cancel culture has really done a service to society by by saying we are going to vote with our money and we're going to say we're not going to buy your products if you continue to be racist, if you continue to be sexist, if you continue all these things that are really detrimental to a lot of minority communities. And and I think that's really a great benefit. So I understand what you mean about, you know, that the companies are are kind of preempting this response to to cancel culture and saying, before we get canceled, let's make this change. But I think the action of making the change is is just so amazing. And I think that really detracts from from the change that they have made on their own. So big ups and to it's good Dr. for business and it's good for business so i don't see what the problem is yeah <laughs> it's one yeah. of those like okay the the company wins and you know uh, everyone else wins so mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. the problem here <laughs> yeah absolutely but conservatives really see it as a threat as as can be seen in you know these american poll numbers but i believe we i i think we have a lot of reflection in canada with a lot of american poll numbers um but oh so again in that same article there were some more poll numbers some more uh data that came out and in uh 2018 it found that 43 percent of young white men ages 15 to 24 think that discrimination against white people has become as big a problem as discrimination against black people and other minority groups. Uh, in fact, almost half said that poll uh, said in that poll that diversity efforts will harm white people. So these white men, and, and you know what, it comes from this white fragility, this idea of white fragility, where these men who are, you know, white men are the top of the food chain and they have had so much privilege for so long that they have gotten used to being given everything. And listen, I know there's going to be some white men out there who are going to react to me saying that, but it's the it's the truth. White men have been given a priority for many, many years. And so a lot of them now feel this fragility because things are changing, because minorities are standing up and saying, we're not going to accept this anymore. We want change. And they are really fighting for change through cancel culture. And so that's why these men who have been very privileged, middle-class white men, are now feeling like they don't want cancel culture because it's going to change the privileges that they've enjoyed in their lives. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, now, now they're... They have to kind of climb their way up just like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. That can't happen, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you know what? I, I, I'm glad that you say that because, you know, I know that you may be in the minority of thinking that. We may have people who are listening right now who say, 
um, white fragility is a myth or whatever. I don't have any privilege, uh, even though I'm a white man. But, you know, and I feel like white men feel like they're being attacked right now um, because we're, you know, I say we as a, as I, I am white, but I am a female and I am LGBTQ. Um, we're coming for that power. You know, we want yeah. rights, too. But, uh, we want equality. It- yeah, and I, I made this comment like maybe a couple episodes ago. I can't remember in what context, but uh, opportunities that are not finite, right? There's there's an there's not this like finite number of opportunities uh, for people to be successful, and for some reasons, there's just perspective that you know uh, if you let minorities um, you know have more opportunities, somehow that takes away from uh, white people. It's, it's that's not how the economy works, and there's there's not like a finite number of money out there. Money's a make believe concept that we can like grow to infinite amounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's there's also this fear that they personally are going to be targeted um, by cancel culture for things that maybe they said in their past mm. um, or anything like that. And I, I can understand that fear to, to a degree, but I think they are really inflating their, their importance. Um, <laughs> cancel culture, like a huge, huge cancel culture mob is not coming for you because you said some racist things in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. Your family is going to come for you. They're going to push you and maybe call you in to have these conversations and debates. They're not going to come for your job, you know, all these things, unless you are totally, totally beyond racist and hold some sort of leadership uh, position. But like, I think that there is this inflation of importance that a lot of um, white men feel that they are going to be targeted that's another privilege, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. It's worth examining your privilege if you are listening right now. As a white person, I often examine, you know, the types of privileges that I have. Um, and, you know, it's not that that you have um, no oppression in your life. I'm sure, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot to be said for intersectionality of yes, I'm privileged in these, these areas and no, I'm not privileged in these areas. And, um, so there is an intersection of, of privilege. Um, but I think that these, these people who have been at the top of the food chain are afraid of being toppled and they think that they are important enough to be toppled. So I think that if you are in a leadership position and you are spouting racist remarks, then yes, you should be pulled down from your pedestal. Sherry, all I'm hearing from you is cancel white men. That's all I'm hearing. (laughs) I know. And that's what I'm afraid that I'm being like portrayed as right now. (laughs) No. Because I am. Well, I, I... Rory, do you feel canceled? <laughs> no, no, I, I really don't. And I actually, to uh, let you off the hook a bit, Sherry, I, I agree with you. I think social media and the internet are giving people the ability to to reach some powerful people who are exposing bigoted, misogynist, transphobic, J.K. Rowling, or racist views. And, you know, they're they're not being ruined, depending on their position of power, but they're at least being called out for it yeah can we talk jk rowling for a minute 
Because that is one example that I wanted to get to. Because my goodness, that woman, <laughs> she is something else. She definitely well, ruined Harry Potter for everyone. Ha- have, you, have you canceled her? Because I know you're like a big Harry Potter. I am fan. a huge Harry Potter fan, and that is something. So I'm in all these fandom groups, like on Facebook and stuff like that. Like I'm all into the fandom, and. That is something we really struggled with as as a community when this came out. So if you don't know by now, um, J.K. Rowling, um, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but she posted a whole bunch of transphobic tweets. And um, when people kind of called her out on it, she doubled down and wrote a whole essay about why trans women are not real women. So... Yeah, so that didn't she also write she, a book? Did she also write a book that? No, she was had going to those topics. So. She's talking oh, okay. about it. She's talking about it. I hope no publishers take her up on that. I hope that's what cancel culture has done is stopped her from being able to produce content like that. And mm-hmm. you know, it was it was a lot to grapple with as somebody who loves Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter. I want all Harry Potter merchandise. I want, I, you know, I went to Warner Brothers Studio. Like, I do these things because I love Harry Potter. But I no longer want to support a woman who is transphobic. Um, especially since, you know, um, trans people are part of the LGBTQ community. And I want to support, you know, my trans brothers and sisters. And I don't think it's right of me to give money to somebody who is so openly transphobic and so openly And she's still collecting royalties. And she is still collecting royalties. And I think that's the difference. So we have a lot of people in our culture who... um, have, you know, maybe made some racist statements and things like that, made some racist artwork, whatever. Um, you know, I think about somebody like Michael Jackson, who has been accused of um, sexually assaulting young boys. Um, he's not getting royalties anymore from his artwork. So maybe it's okay to enjoy the art for what it is. But somebody like J.K. Rowling is getting royalties. So by buying into the merchandise and you know the named things that are coming out of of her um of her books that is giving money to a transphobe so i have come to terms with the fact that she has written these books yes uh these books have a lot of amazing messages about equality and about racism although i don't know she must i don't know if she intended to write them anymore but whatever and 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 we're taking as a fandom we're taking that art back we're saying this is now ours we own a piece of this um as as a uh, you know a community and um and we've decided not to give her any more money. So yes, I'll read, you know, the copies that I've already purchased of her books. Um, I will, you know, draw in my already purchased Harry Potter coloring book. But there is a new Harry Potter game that's going to be coming out and I won't be purchasing that. And um Although I may at some point purchase it, but only if it's on sale. And so I've made these kind of concessions <laughs> to say, okay, if I'm going to be purchasing this, it's only going to be no, no, for you a have, fraction. You have to buy it actually secondhand. Hey. And you yeah. know for sure that your money did not go to 
J.K. Rowling. And that and that's what I may do as well, um, is buy it secondhand because my PS5 has a disc drive. So I may <laughs> do that instead um, if I can find a copy. But, like, I don't want any of my money to go to her. And I think a lot of people as well in my community have said, okay, if I buy this thing on sale, if I buy this game on sale, um, I will contribute. Uh, contribute the same amount that I paid for the game to an LGBT organization. So mm. there's kind of a give and take there. Um, yeah, but That's we kind of have of to. At it. Yeah, we Especially have to reconcile someone, it, right? Yeah, someone who wouldn't otherwise have you know contributed anything. If you know this is the effect of your conscience speaking to you as you do maybe contribution, and I think that's a great thing. I wanted to ask you, Sherry. Um, in terms of separating art from the artist, when you go back and read Harry Potter, do you notice any traces of the transphobia throughout the works, or is it just the absence of trans characters, which is what I guessed it would probably be? This year has been really tough on me as a Harry Potter reader because I reread Harry Potter every once in a while. Like, every couple of years I'll do a reread. Um, and this year it took me... F- like, when those tweets came out and stuff... I kind of had to put it aside for a while because I felt very conflicted. Um, and as I was reading it, I found it really tough to read uh, because a lot of the inequalities have really become glaringly obvious and people have been speaking out. Um, like the actor who played Cho Chang in the films. I mean, obviously Cho Chang is this horribly racist Asian depiction of a stereotypical name. Um, and so you know, that actor, actress has been speaking out about it and, and sort of, it's really brought to my attention, hey, this is like really racist. You may not have thought about it, you know, it it sort of crosses your mind, but you kind of let it go because she is a character. Um, but a lot of these little things kind of come into play where you start to question things of, hey, there's there's only a couple black characters and we're talking about modern day London, England. I lived there. They have a lot of Muslim people. They have a lot of immigrants from, you know, African countries and they have a very diverse population there. Um, So how can you not write any black characters? There's like two and there's one Asian character and her name is Cho. And, you know, (laughs) like all token characters. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. Well, I don't know. The black people I think are just uh there may be some tokenism there to be totally honest (laughs) yeah there may be some tokenism i think that's something that i really have to grapple with as as a fan and as somebody who still reads the books of like you know i find that very challenging and i think that's you know it it, it's a difficult thing to escape from it's a question we've all been asking ourselves over the last you know five years or less or whatever that how do you separate the art from the artist and yeah. Um, how much are you going to cancel, you might say? Yeah. And how do you go about canceling? Because mm-hmm. it's not a straightforward thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are book burnings possible now? <laughs> I'm going to say no. I really love books. <laughs> As a teacher, that would really, like, that just... Yeah. I'm still not a hill. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. As a teacher, I just can't get on board with a book burning. <laughs> Although, like, a part of me does want to burn my Harry Potter books just as a, like, this this cathartic motion of, you know, actions of burning it. But 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, you know what? It's so, it's so difficult. And I think that's where I try and reconcile it as a community. We've created this fandom that goes beyond the books. We've created, you know, fan fiction and stuff like that, where we've inserted the LGBT community has inserted themselves and created LGBTQ characters. Um, you know, um, BIPOC community members have inserted uh, characters, ableist communities have, um, or able, able-bodied, sorry, I'm trying to think of the correct uh, termination there, terms, uh, able-bodied people have created, um, you know, these uh, characters that have, you know, maybe a hearing deficit or a physical uh, disability, you know, none of those characters are in written into the books. And so we mm-hmm. have, as a community, have found a way to to bring them in. Um, and J.K. Rowling saying that Dumbledore is gay, he is not gay in the written in the books. If you didn't write a character as gay, you don't get to claim that you're LGBT friendly because you have a gay character because he's not written as gay. I don't believe it. Anyway, she can, she can just go. <laughs> basically, basically, it was an afterthought, which is still even more insulting. Yeah. She can just go. Like, she doesn't... I. She is... Uh, now what I call she who must not be named. Uh, and so I will no longer be naming her and she is no longer part of my fandom. And that is how I've reconciled this. But it is, it is a struggle, especially when I am, you know what, I believe in cancel culture. I believe that it has a significant impact on society. And I believe that, you know, it it's important to call people out when they are, when they're not living up to, um, a standard of humanity that we expect from people now. We expect people to be kind and caring and and all inclusive. these different things. Inclusive. Inclusive and diverse. And if you're not going to be that, then you can go. So that so I am full on supporting cancel culture. And so I support canceling uh, she who must not be named. All right. <laughs> uh- and, and to me, you know, I, I think there is a, definitely a place for a cancel culture. I think it's so important to understand the context and and really kind of try to fit the consequences to the crime. Mm-hmm. And so she who shall not be named seems like a good candidate to be canceled. Mm-hmm. Don't give her money, please. All of you listeners, don't give her money. Buy fan-made merchandise um buy things secondhand don't give her any more money she does not need it she has billions of dollars like let's just she can go and hide away for all i care exactly even even if she's canceled she's gonna be okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) she is living very well Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be wonderful though if she did in some way i'm going into a fantasy land now was stripped of her intellectual property rights for harry potter and we just said no, you are not qualified to handle this property anymore. <laughs> We're taking it from you. We're going to give it to someone else who can continue on its legacy, and you're not getting any Maybe royalties. preferably a trans author. Yeah. That would be the that greatest. Would be very fitting. <laughs> I would Insult. think, like, we don't want one person to control this. We want, like, a board of directors. So let's have, like, a trans person and an Asian person and a black person and, like, all these different diverse people. They will now control all of your intellectual property. <laughs> 
<laughs> I honestly thought you were going to say something like, I will have a, a Hufflepuff committee, <laughs> committee <laughs> to control the intellectual yes, property. Yes, yes, Kenny, yes. <laughs> See, I, I, to be honest, I don't know what I just said. I just know these words. I have no idea the what words, they mean. He pantomimes it. Oh, you just found a special I don't know what it means. Heart, Kenny. <laughs> Yeah, but the problem is I don't know what it means. It I don't know what matter. those words mean. You now have a special place in my heart for just knowing those words. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry for going on okay. such a long rant about J.K. Rowling. It just, I, it just quite all is right. bubbling in me. I wondered if it might spark that in you when I uh, did the little aside <laughs> and drop, did a little name drop. When Look it at what you did, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, overall... My final thoughts on cancel culture, I'm still not 100% on board with it. I, I definitely see it as a, a really powerful tool that can, that is accessible to a diverse range of people who are otherwise disenfranchised and they can achieve some level of justice for themselves. But I still hate to see it used in place of a discussion where you bring a mob mentality to a certain moral position onto someone who's probably well-meaning at heart and maybe just, you know, maybe they misunderstood or maybe they just have a different way of viewing the problem. And I don't like to see too harsh of a cancel culture mentality chase after the wrong targets. But how do you say who's the wrong target? It's always going to be a matter of negotiation. That's where I fall on it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the, the problem is it's almost like a, um, democracy, right? In terms of you uh, leverage the um, a vast number of people to actually do the canceling, and unfortunately, if you depend on people to make these decisions, people themselves are flawed, mm-hmm. and you will never get a perfect result because you rely on people. And I, I don't think it's fully democratic either, especially when it comes down to like you were saying, fitting your your opinion in 140 characters or whatever. And so many people just latch onto a word or two and, you know, in the court of public opinion, they decide guilt or innocence based on this tiny little snippet that they see. And they join the mass in pushing against this person without, you know, having any idea what the actual situation or context was. This is why I don't like it when people have uh, people have to make decisions and determine things people are we can't trust people we need to make these robot decisions. overlords to make these calls for us <laughs> we we really do we we can't trust people and the masses okay so anyways that was a good discussion mm-hmm. and uh i i enjoyed it so <laughs> if you well i was gonna say tell us what you think about cancel culture but really don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't really want to hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, do you really want to this hear? This is beautiful, <laughs> Kenny. <laughs> this a huge amount break. of descending, descending goodness, opinions. You're very ostracizing of our you listeners. Have zero we listeners don't want to hear after from you. <laughs> okay, if you have any opinions, you can send it to Sherry. And, Mary. <laughs> and please don't cancel us. That's all we have to say about that. <laughs> Yes, we're doing our best. Please don't cancel us. <laughs> okay, so thanks for listening. Talk to you later. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.
Did you all see that at the bottom, apparently, of this new lockdown on the the uh, paperwork of it all, there is a hotline you can call, a hotline number you can call to, like, tattletale on your neighbors who are having uh, Easter gatherings or whatever, and you get a $5,000 reward. So here's what, what? I'm thinking. <laughs> no way. Mama I'm going Easter car. party hunting. <laughs> i to make some money. Exactly. Uh, okay, listen, that is actually a really good strategy. I mean, like, you know, people... The, People might be struggling to make ends meet, but if you set a reward <laughs> to tattle on someone, that's a pretty good incentive. Yeah. Rory, you're going to hop in my car. We're going hunting. I'm in. I'm all in. <laughs> With your binoculars. Yep. Oh, they're, they're carrying Easter eggs. Well, we'll scout it out from the road at first. It'll be like, how many cars are in the driveway? That one's suspicious. Three vehicles. Let's check it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I saw this on TikTok, but I'm pretty sure it's real. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Now I'm no, no, questioning it. No, no, I'm pretty it. sure it's real. He, like, showed pictures of the document. I'm okay. pretty sure it's real. But, yeah, I know TikTok has led me astray before. 